this summer, we've been taking a little bit of a break from our study of the Gospel of John, as many of you know. And so uh, we, we've been, I think, about two years in the Gospel of John now. Take a little break for the summer, cover some other topics, and then jump back into that Gospel uh, towards the fall. But um, if I have not met you yet, I'd love to meet you after service just to introduce myself and get to know you a little bit more. Of course, our members would love to meet you as well if they've not yet been able to do that. Uh, God continues to do a lot of things through our church. We're excited about that. Uh, being about uh, two and a half, I guess, years old now, uh, December 6, 2020. It was June 4th, 2023. I don't know. Carry the one. I don't know. I think it's about two and a half years old. So uh, just amazed to see what God continues to do. And uh, even in the life of church uh, today, uh, what we're going to be talking about is the role of deacons within the life of the church, which is an exciting step, I think, for us as we mature as a local congregation as well. So uh, we've been talking about some different things. Uh, Two or three weeks ago, we talked about the nature of evangelism. Again, as we take a break from the Gospel of John, uh, we had a guest speaker talk to us about uh, God's heart for the nations and discipling the nations and how we can as a local community, be ascending church to missionaries to send them out. And then last week, Pastor Brandon talked about the significance of why we even gather as a church. Why do we come together? And so some of these are just uh, foundational, fundamental teachings. Uh, This week, as I mentioned, we'll be talking about the role of deacons, which is something that uh, we have in our Constitution and bylaws, we have in our Statement of Faith. Uh, We talk about some, but we've not really preached on, so we thought that that would be a helpful lesson for us uh, today. And uh, as I mentioned, uh, we are in the process of bringing on deacons for the first time. So we've had elders, which is one of the church offices. We also are looking to bring on deacons. So at our April members meeting, we nominated a few men and women for that role, and uh, we plan on voting on them this coming Sunday. So we've had a lot of good conversations about the role of deacons and thought that we would share a little bit. A little little, uh, commercial uh, for a small little resource called Deacons, How They Serve and Strengthen the Church. Uh, Nine Marks, as you know, we do a lot of uh, things with Nine Marks. Uh, They just have a great series of books. And so I would recommend this book. Uh, My message isn't necessarily uh, 100% from this, but it is a very, very helpful resource if you would want to get that for uh, more information. So uh, we're going to start our time in uh, Acts chapter 6. We're going to read verses 1 through 7 uh, as a bit of a foundational text for today. We will be jumping around a little bit. Uh, if you've studied deacons, you know that we have to go to 1 Timothy 3 at least at some point and talk about that a little bit. But um, Acts chapter 6 is a great starting point for us. <coughs> so we will uh, start there today. I'm going to start in verse 1, read through verse 7, and then we'll pray for the service. So Acts chapter 6 starting in verse 1. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. Verse 4, But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. 
And what they said pleased the whole. Con- uh, sorry, and what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose um, Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Procurus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and per- uh, uh, sorry, Permanus, and Nicolaus, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they pre- uh, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And then verse seven, and the word of God continued to increase. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for another opportunity to gather this morning, God. I thank you for this location that we can gather in, for the way in which you've provided for this local congregation over the last two and a half years. God, I pray that you continue to be faithful, God, and I pray that we would be faithful to you and obedient to your leading God. We thank you, God, for the opportunity to study your word this morning. Thank you that we can open the Bible freely without fear this morning. God, we pray for those around the world who are not able to do that. God, I even specifically pray for Cody this morning as he preaches his first sermon up at Elon. I pray that you would help him, Father, uh, that it would be a fruitful and productive ministry for him. Uh, Give us wisdom, God, as we work through and process through the role of deacons within this local community. May we be founded upon your word, God. May we be grounded on what you say in your word, and may you be pleased through that. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. And so this morning, um, I guess every sermon I preach, I struggle a little bit to know how to best present the material. There's so much that we could cover, uh, so many things that could be said. And so I really do hope that uh, this morning's message really leads to more good conversations. We've had a number of those already, uh, and so we're not going to be able to cover everything, right? Uh, Your critique is my critique, and it's like, Gabe, you left some things out. Uh, Yes, I know. Uh, We got about 45 minutes, and and that's great, but uh, we are not going to be able to say everything that can be said. And so jumping kind of into this conversation, right, uh, we went from evangelism to global missions to why do we gather now to deacons, I know we're jumping around a little bit, but uh, covering important topics. But I thought for this morning what we would do is is basically address three specific questions, all of which are kind of going down a funnel to why the role of the deacon is important, okay? And so that's my hope. If it doesn't work, tell me afterwards, and I'll apologize, all right? So uh, first question, what is the nature of the church? I, I think we have to start there. We talk about it. Um, we uh, interact with it, but we have some assumptions about the nature of the church that I think become important to us as we talk about the role of deacons. So question one, what is the nature of the church? Question number two, what are the church offices? Okay, so question two, what are the church offices? We've talked about that already a little bit. And then finally, question three, what are the qualifications and responsibilities for deacons? So what is the nature of the church, what are the church offices, and then what are the qualifications and responsibilities for deacons? So let's jump right into question number one, what is the nature of the church? (coughs) Every time I preach, I get a, a, a head cold the week before. Either that or I always have a head cold. I don't know. One of the two. Uh, I think it's the first. Okay. Um, 
What is the nature of the church? So I'm convinced that one of the most misunderstood institutions in all of human history is the church. Like when I say church, what comes to your mind? Even, even for those of us who know that the church is not a building, probably the first thing that comes to your mind is a physical location. Right? I'm going to the church building, right? Now, we know that that is not accurate, and even so, we still use it that way. There's a lot of confusion, right? The, the Greek word for church is actually originally just a common word, right? There were no spiritual connotations to it, but in Acts chapter 16, verse 18, Christ makes this statement that I will build my church, and it's like now the word instantly takes on religious or spiritual connotations. And so throughout the last 2,000 years, understandably, the word church has a very religious meaning and connotation. But originally, the word really just means assembly or gathering. And so we are gathered as Christ's church today in a particular location, but the location does not determine the fact that we are a church. Correct? Correct. Okay. So uh, there is some confusion with the use of the term. Um, now, even with the idea or understanding that the church is a gathering or an assembly, there's further confusion with that. So let me give you a few examples. I work at a Christian university with other Christians. Does that make us a church? No. All right? We work very hard to make sure people know that we're not trying to be the church. We are actually a gathering of Christians. Uh, when a small group gathers for Bible study, is that a church? There are religious groups that have the word church in their name, Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Are they a church? When Christians group together for virtual Bible study on Facebook, does that make them a church? We're gathered this morning under the name Christ Covenant Fellowship. Are we a church, right? So important questions, some of which we're going to hopefully answer today, some of which I'm not going to get into, but I would love to have side conversations with you. Add to that the consumeristic mindset that is very prevalent within society so that even when we gather, what is the nature of our gathering? And we've talked through this some, but I thought this quote by Michael Bird, uh, it's a book called What Christians Ought to Believe. It's a book that he basically just walks through the Apostles' Creed uh, just as a historical uh, confession of faith or a creed. Uh, listen to what he says about the consumeristic mindset that makes it so confusing to even know what the church is supposed to be. He said it is too easy to view the church as a convenient location to have one's spiritual needs satisfied. Church becomes a place where I go to get my God fixed for the week a place where I can get some encouragement from my favorite preacher, somewhere I can attend to enjoy the music that I find uplifting, a convenient place where I can meet up with my Christian friends, a provider who assists primarily for my spiritual satisfaction and my religious pleasure, whatever we might call that entity, consumerist religion or even, or even Christianity, it is certainly not church as Christians have ordinarily understood it. The church is not a local religious franchise, with a mission statement to cater to my spiritual needs. The church is not a business selling snack-sized portions of religion 
to the muddled masses who crave a few ounces of transcendence in their ordinary lives. Good critique that I think he provides in this consumeristic mindset of us coming to church thinking that it's all about me, all about my desires, all about my wishes. So the assembly of believers coming together is more than just about that individual. Here at Christ Covenant Fellowship, we have attempted to define the word church. I think we've done a pretty good job. It's based on historic confession of faith or statement of faith. And so what is our understanding of the church? Again, helps to frame the offices of the church then. And so in our statement of faith, some of you are familiar with it. I doubt you've memorized it. That's okay. But if you look on our website, our statement of faith says a gospel church, and then this is the definition. We believe a visible church of Christ is a congregation of baptized believers joined together by covenant in the faith and fellowship of the gospel. A visible church observes the ordinances of Christ, submits to his laws, exercises the gifts, rights, and privileges invested in them by his word. The church's only scriptural offices are elders, also called overseers or pastors, and deacons whose qualifications and duties are defined in the epistles to Timothy and Titus. And so we as a congregation have adopted a historic confession of faith. It's not something that we have come up with, right, to try to help define and describe the nature and function of the local church. I think this is important because uh, as we define it, we talk about different aspects of it. So, for instance, the offices of the church become important in the functioning of a local church. The observance of ordinances, like we had today with communion, uh, become important in the functioning of the church. Uh, Acts chapter 6 is set in a historic timeline where the church is just beginning. If you understand, right, the New Testament, you know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, over the writings, uh, or sorry, over the ministry of Christ primarily, most of, uh, about half of their um, books to a third of the books are about the last week of Christ's life, right, leading up to his death, burial, and resurrection. The book of Acts then picks up on uh, right when Jesus was resurrected and then actually ascends into heaven. And he then um, works through primarily the Holy Spirit to build his church. So what he promised in Matthew chapter 16, that he will build his church, we see that being lived out in the book of Acts as the apostles went and carried the message with them and the church was beginning. Uh, here in the book of Acts then, in Acts chapter 6, we see some of the original maybe struggles or conflicts or issues that the early church was dealing with, which again helps to uh, shape our understanding of the nature of the church. Now, I do want to also, and some of you who have studied the book of Acts probably knew that I'd go here, Acts chapter 2. Okay, Acts chapter 2, if you want to turn there. Uh, at the beginning of Acts chapter 2, we see the Holy Spirit being poured out at Pentecost, this unique ministry of the Holy Spirit. Yes, the Holy Spirit was active in the Old Testament. Yes, the Holy Spirit was active throughout the life of Christ. We see the unique ministry of the Holy Spirit being poured out in Acts chapter 2 at the beginning. And we see the result of that in the fellowship of the believers towards the end of Acts chapter 2. <coughs> so... <clears throat> The last few verses, starting in verse 42 of Acts chapter 2, talks about what that gathering, what that assembly of believers looked like on a regular basis. Okay, Acts chapter 2, verse 42, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching 
and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and to prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the, the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending, um, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. You notice that with the coming of the Holy Spirit, the unique indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit, the abiding presence of the Holy Spirit, working within individuals and working collectively through the assembly, that the church was vibrant, the church was active, the church was growing. Those were, uh, people were in awe because of what God was doing. And in the midst of that then, or through that, God was, Christ was building his church. Now, one thing I want to kind of throw in that I think we often miss, right? The church is the assembly. We see here in Acts chapter 2 that it's vibrant, that it's alive, that it's active in a very real sense. As one of my seminary professors would say, it's like an organism, right? The church is like this active organism that's maturing and it's growing. However, something that I think is sometimes overlooked is the church is not only an organism, the church is also an organization, okay? And I know for some of you, you're like, mm, no, let's not go there. But, but as my seminary professor would say, it takes two wings to fly, it takes two rails to run a train, right? You need both of these things for a healthy church. So that is, uh, okay, so in, in, in many ways, in many ways, the church is organism, organization. There's a sense in which the church is a business. I don't use that word, Gabe. Don't say it. All right? I'm not saying a business. I'm not saying for profit. I'm not saying anything like that. I'm saying there's administrative responsibilities in the functioning of a healthy church. You need prayer, but you need programs. You need ordinances, but you need an order of service. Right? You need praise, but you need a parking team. Okay? You need biblical instructions. You also need church insurance. That would be helpful as well. So what is important to consider when we talk about the nature of the church is the organism aspect and organizational aspect of the church. Look back at Acts chapter 6. <clears throat> Verse 1, In those days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. This is not a question of doctrine. This is not a question of are we worshiping the right God. This is not a question in this point of Judaism versus this Gentile and how do Jews and Gentiles come together. This is a question of an administrative oversight that was happening within the local church. This was in a question more organizationally and administrative than it was a question of the organism and alive and active uh, aspect. So as we talk about the nature of the church, again, uh, we've left a lot out, right? It's the assembly. Keep in mind it's these two aspects. It's alive and it's active. It's also administration and organization, Okay. That's question one, what is the nature of the church? Question two, what are the church offices? So if you think we have some confusion about the nature of the church, 
it kind of pales in comparison to what is a pastor. What should a pastor be doing? I remember reading a book called The Pastor Theologian. Of course, the title of the book, you'd say what, what the author was thinking the pastor should be primarily is a theologian. But in the beginning of the book, it said, we are so confused as to what the role of a pastor actually is. So what comes to your mind when I say pastor? A lot of times a person may come to mind. But when I say, what should a pastor be doing? We probably have a lot of different answers represented across this room today. So is the pastor a CEO? Is the pastor a business leader? Is the pastor a counselor? Is the pastor a theologian? Is the pastor basically a justice of the peace, the Mary and Barry? Uh, is the pastor a shepherd, a community, organizi- a community organizer? Is the pastor a teacher? And perhaps your answer to all those is yes. That is what a pastor is or should be. We don't even know sometimes what to call a pastor, right? What do we call the leader of the church? A pastor, elder, bishop, apostle, overseer, deacon. Uh, there's confusion, right? And there's not consistency in the way that we even use that term. And so as we, as a local congregation, look at these aspects of the nature of the church, we also have to look at the nature of the church offices and what we even call the individuals who are called to lead us. So at Christ Covenant Fellowship, I already read our statement of faith. We have two uh, official titles or official offices that we use within the church. Yes, there are some uh, synonyms, right, or some other words that we can use for that. But I remind you of the statement of faith. The church's only scriptural offices are elder, also called overseer or pastor, and deacons, whose qualifications and duties are outlined in the epistles to Timothy and to Titus. And so um, we see in 1 Timothy chapter 3, um, let's turn there now, if you will. Uh, let's talk a little bit about these offices. You'd say, where did you get these? You'd say, well, you got these right from the pages of Scripture, right? We didn't make these up. Uh, we are just trying to be biblical in what we're doing when it comes to the nature and understanding of the church and biblical in what we're doing when it comes to the nature of the church offices. So if you're in the ESV, you're going to see that uh, the, the first few verses say qualification for overseers. And then uh, verse 8, before that, it's going to say qualification for deacons. All right? Overseer, as you know, is a word that we can use. We typically use the word elder. That's a very biblical term that we see as well. But let me read <clears throat> 1 through 7. Uh, we'll spend a little bit more time on deacons on question number 3. So I want to read First uh, Timothy 3, 1 through 7, um, to talk about at this point as we look at the role of the overseer or the role of the elder within the local church. First Timothy 3, verse 1, the saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, but uh, not a lover of mon- money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, nor into a snare of the devil. 
we see in 1 Timothy 3 an outline or some qualifications or, as some would say, even moral characteristics of the office of overseer or the office of elder. And so at Christ's Covenant Fellowship, we have the office of elder or overseer or what we call pastor, synonymous terms that we use here. Now, turn back to Acts chapter 6, the text that we started on, and we will see some additional information that can be helpful as we look at the church offices and the distinction between the office of an elder and that role and responsibility and the office of a deacon, which again is where we're going. Now in Acts chapter 6, I will admit there's a couple things we got to you know, say, well, it says this, we need to apply it to something else, right? So it does not say overseer, it does not say elder in Acts chapter 6, right? What is the term that is used? It's a term that is used for oversight of the church is actually apostle, okay? And so you got to remember, Acts chapter 6, we came through the life of Christ. Christ is building his church. Um, the apostles are still alive, thankfully, right? Because they are the ones that Christ is using primarily to spread the gospel message as they then train up believers and converts and send them out. And so the apostles are still there. The apostles are those who were with Christ, who witnessed the resurrected Christ, who were sent out by Christ. And so we believe very firmly that the role of apostle is one that ended there in the first century with the death of the actual apostles. However, the principles that we learn from this passage, I think, can be applied to church leaders, and that's why we are using that here today. You will notice that um, although the word apostle is used, the church leadership or those who are serving in that capacity, I think, can be uh, applied to them. So how did they respond in Acts chapter 6 to this request of a need to help out because the widows were being neglected in the daily distribution? Verse 2, it said, The twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, notice what they say, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. They recognized the need. But they also recognize this not really our responsibility as the apostles. Again, we're going to apply that then to leadership within the church as far as the role of the overseer or the elder and saying what is the primary role or responsibility of an overseer or an elder within the church. And we say that is the preaching of the word of God. Notice it goes on to say, verse 3, pick from among yourselves seven men of good repute full of wisdom, uh, uh, the spirit and of wisdom, whom we may appoint to this duty. Verse 4, again, what are they doing primarily, those who are leading? We will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. So the apostles saw themselves as needing to devote themselves to preaching the word of God, verse 2, to prayer and the ministry of the word, verse 4. That is the primary responsibility that they have. And we as a congregation would say that it would apply to the role of the elder as what should be primary in the life of the church, that those who are elders should be doing that, where deacons, and again, we'll get to that, their primary responsibility would be meeting some of these physical needs that are very important for the life of the church. So in the book, Deacons, that I mentioned, um, the author brings up an interesting point. He's, he's actually interacting with some research done by John Stott, who's a theologian who says this at the beginning of the church here in the book of Acts. He said, Satan actually tries three attacks on the early church as it's getting established. 
And I think this is helpful because Satan typically does not change his tactics, right? He just finds new people to use them on. All right? We can explore that more if you want to, but, you know, look at the way he tempted Eve in the garden. Look at the way he tempted Jesus in the wilderness. It's, it's the same type of temptation. Taking the word of God, twisting it, right? Satan doesn't have new tactics. He just has different people that he uses them on. So this is what Satan did to try to attack the early church. Acts chapter 4, he tried to use persecution from outside the church. Persecution from outside the church. It didn't work. Actually, the church was scattered and the gospel went with them. Praise God. Acts chapter 5, moral corruption from within. If you remember the story in Acts chapter 5, that um, there was some issues with Ananias and Sapphira, right? Moral corruption from within. Again, God said, you know what, we're just going to deal with that right here and now. That did not stop the church from growing. And now there's an attempt at distraction. Persecution. Moral corruption and distraction. This is what John Stott says about it. The devil's next attack was the cleverest of the three. Having failed to overcome the church by either persecution or corruption, he now tried distraction. If he could preoccupy the apostles with social administration, which though essential was not their calling, they would neglect their God-given responsibilities to pray and preach and so leave the church without any defense against false doctrine. Was the ministry to the widows important? Absolutely. Was that ministry something the apostles should have been overseeing? Absolutely not. The author goes on to say, Nevertheless, the apostles recognized the fundamental truth. A church whose ministers are chained to the tyranny of the urgent which so often shows up in tangible problems, is a church removing its heart to strengthen its arm. It's a kind of slow-motion suicide. You understand what the author's saying? The tyranny of the urgent manifested in tangible issues within the church is cause for distraction so that church leadership, instead of doing what they're supposed to do, which is the ministry of the word, get caught up doing all these administrative things. Are these important? Absolutely. Is it what the apostles at that time in Acts chapter 6 were to be doing? No. Is it what the elders of the church are primarily supposed to be doing? No. That's why we need deacons. You say, well, you know, that's Acts 6, Gabe. You know, like, like we're far more mature than that, right? We would not fall into the temptation of distraction. So we have an elders meeting every Monday goes for about two and a half hours usually. We've gotten to the point where we have to set a timer because we start with administrative issues, concerns, things that need addressed. And if we're not careful, two and a half hours goes by and we're talking about important, okay, important administrative things, administrative things, but they're not the essence of what elders should be doing. Okay, I'm just being honest with you. All right, let me read a list just this spring of some, again, these are important issues. I'm not reading these because some of you are going to be like, I brought up that issue. <coughs> that's good, right? That's good, but that's why we need deacons, right? And that's why many of you have stepped up and even done those responsibilities already without the title of a deacon, right? Let me just read some of them. What should we do for child care after 
service during teardown? It's an important question, right? But that's an administrative question. By the way, after service, we're going to have child care. Um, thank you for doing that. Okay. What updates need to be made to the church website? Good questions, but administrative. Do we need to purchase more black chairs? Because these ones are falling apart, apparently. How do we make sure the trash is handled after service so that we're, we're being generous to our host, right? Uh, how are we doing on the church budget? Uh, how do we make sure the outside door is locked for the child care area to make sure that that area is secure? Should we invest in a texting software for communication for church members? Some of you are like, please no. All right. Do we need additional storage for church materials because we're growing, expanding what we have, right? Good questions, but they can become consuming as we look at that in the life of the church and what we are committed to, hopefully as a local congregation, not just elders, all of us, right, is that elders can do what elders are supposed to do, deacons do what deacons are supposed to do, church members do what church members are supposed to do, and as a result, the church grows as we're faithful to what God has called us to do. So I don't bring these things up so that we would feel guilty. I bring these things up to say God has designed a better way, and we want to be faithful to that, which brings us to question three. What are the qualifications and responsibilities of deacons? So I entitled the sermon, Deacons, the Servants of the Church. And some of you who are a little, uh, have studied this are like, that's, that's, that's not a good title. Um, and, and I agree, but I still like it, right? Why is that not a good title? Well, because deacon actually means servant. So really my title was servants, the servants of the church. Um, which doesn't really make much sense. But the word deacon itself is a term that literally means servant. Uh, go back to Acts chapter 6. Uh, we see the idea of this represented in verse um, 2. 12, summon the full number of the disciples and said, it's not right that we should give our up preaching the word of God to and then serve tables. That's the Greek word that is similar to the word deacon or a, a, a similar um, uh, origin of the word deacon. We certainly see that the original deacons then, most believe these seven were the original call of deacons. That's why we're using that for today's message. Um, they were primarily put in place to do some of these administrative tasks. In the first century, this was serving tables. Uh, in reality, what we see happening in the early church is what should be happening at local churches, right? Where, uh, according to Ephesians chapter 4, I'm not going to ask you to turn there, but in Ephesians chapter 4, it says church leaders are given to churches to equip the saints for the saints to do the work of the ministry, right? Again, nature of the church, what are the church offices, what is a pastor supposed to be doing? We have a misconception at times that the pastor is paid to do the work of the ministry. That's not what the pastor is paid to do. All right? Primarily, the pastor should be praying for the congregation, preaching the word, and helping to equip the saints so that the saints can do the work of the ministry. That's, that's, that's in a lot of reasons why this church even started two and a half years ago. We had this crazy thought that actually a congregation could be equipped for the congregation to go out and share the gospel message. I know it sounds crazy, but it is within Scripture, okay? So this mindset like, 
hey, pastor, I'm going to bring my friend to church. Can you preach the gospel to him? Well, we're going to preach the gospel, but how about you learn how to present the gospel to your friend as well? Hey, pastor, uh, my neighbor needs some help. Can you help my neighbor? Um, I can probably participate, but how about you're equipped to help your neighbor? How about the home group that you're in helps to equip your neighbor and get to know them, right? And, and uh, assist them with their time of need, right? So raising up a congregation to actually fulfill what God has called us to do, which is for us to go out, all of us going out, sharing the gospel message verbally, right? Because it is the gospel, we're proclaiming that. And then living in light of that as we serve one another and serve those in our community. So that is what Paul talks about in Ephesians 4. That is what is being lived out in Acts chapter 6, where those from among the congregation are the ones who are actually doing the work of the ministry. Now, let's look specifically at deacons. Let's go back to 1 Timothy chapter 3. I do want to read verses 8 through 13 because I think it is important, all right, distinguishing between the work of the elders or the overseers and the work of deacons within the local church. So notice what the Apostle Paul says to Timothy as he writes about the qualifications or some would say the moral characteristics of that of a deacon. 1 Timothy 3, verse 8, Deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience, And let them also be tested first. Let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus." You see here a picture of a mature believer. Again, similar to elders, this is not a new convert. These are individuals who are already living out these things in their service to the church. They are individuals who are under the authority of God's word, who are living out in a way that even those from probably outside the church would see that. They have a good reputation. They have a good standing. They are, um, you know, living lives that we would say they are good Christian lives, in a sense, model Christians of what they are doing. Deacons are not like, hey, they didn't make the cut for elder. Well, you can probably put them in as a deacon, right? That is not the case. Actually, many would argue, right, between 1 Timothy 3, overseers or elders, 1 Timothy 3, office of the deacon, really one of the main differences is just the teaching ministry that the elders have, which would correspond to Acts 6, which the apostles, the church leaders at that time said, we don't want to neglect the teaching of the word. So deacons are very mature believers as well. They're people of character. They're committed to the building of the body of Christ. However, and we see this from Acts 6, they're committed to meeting primarily the physical needs of the congregation. In Acts 6, those needs included the distribution of food. That was a very real problem, okay? Christ Covenant Fellowship 2023, we don't have that specific problem, that specific need, right? We don't have Hellenist widows who are being overlooked in food distribution, right? I'm just, right? But we do have other physical needs 
that could be included in the role of deacon. So here are a few, right? This is not comprehensive. If I didn't list one that you may be up for deacon, I apologize, okay? Um, greeters and connection table, role of usher, oversight of the child care area administratively, helping out with small groups in various capacities, um, caring for our missionaries, right? Coordinating that, coordinating men's group, coordinating women's groups. These are all important functions of the church, ones in which deacons can very, I think, uh, faithfully fulfill that role because as we see in 1 Timothy 3, as we see in Acts chapter 6, in a very real sense, deacons are gifts to the church to help meet these physical needs, uh, working in correspondence with the elders in the office of the elder or overseer who are helping to meet the preaching ministry and prayer ministry of the local church. So with that, though, two important things to consider, and this is where um, we can talk afterwards if you want. All right, I'm going to talk about the end of this. All right, two important things with, with deacons. Number one, the congregation was involved in the selection of the deacons. We see that in Acts chapter 6. Uh, pick from among you. This is an indication that congregation, in coordination with the spiritual leaders of the church, selected individuals to serve in the role of deacon. Uh, Christ Covenant Fellowship, we are elder-led congregationalism. What does that mean? It means the final seat of authority rests with the congregation, but it means in the day-to-day -day functioning that elders, the team of elders, help to lead the church, right, in, in connection with the congregation itself. The second important clarification is it seems from the text, right, and uh, we're going to look here in a couple places, that both men and women fulfilled the role of deacon within Scripture, and only men fulfilled the role of elder within Scripture. Okay, now I acknowledge Acts chapter 6, we only see seven men mentioned. However, if you study further, further into the New Testament, when we look at the role or the office of the deacon, it appears as though both men and women were uh, fulfilling that role. So you'd have deacon and deaconesses within Scripture. So back in 1 Timothy chapter 3, <clears throat> verse 11. And this comes down to a question of interpretation, right? As many things do in the Christian life, right? It comes down to a question of interpretation. I already said the word deacon is the word servant. Um, that plays into this in Acts, or sorry, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 11. That phrase, their wives likewise. Um, many of your Bibles probably have a little footnote that say wives likewise or women likewise, right? It's a question of interpretation there. Uh, it seems, I'll be honest, I love the SV, don't get me wrong. Um, it seems a, it, it's, hey, roll the deacon. Men, make sure you're this. Women, make sure you're this. Men, make sure, like it's a parallel, okay, as it goes through. And so I think a Good interpretation of that would actually be the idea of women as opposed to the idea of wives. Um, that's open to some debate, but that is one of the passages that is used. Secondly, if you turn to Romans chapter 6, uh, or sorry, Romans chapter 16, uh, another question arises. Again, it's a question of interpretation. Romans chapter 16, this is Paul writing to the book, uh, church at Rome. 
uh, he, uh, in Acts, uh, Romans chapter 16, he is giving kind of some farewell thoughts <coughs> to the um, church at Rome. <clears throat> the ESV reads, Romans 16, 1, reads, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Centria. Most of your Bible is going to have a footnote when it says a servant. It's going to say deaconess. It comes down to a question of should it be translated simply servant or since this is a specific person spoken of in a specific church, right? It seems that a very honest reading of the text would say Phoebe was serving in the role of deaconess, right? So we as a community in our constitution and bylaws have affirmed the understanding of both deacons and deaconesses. So if you're like, hey, what are we supposed to do? Like, well, we, not elders, we collectively have made a decision on this in our constitution. You, I'm not going to read the whole thing to you because there's a lot of subpoints. But Article 6, Section 6 of our constitution and bylaws outlines the recognition, how we recognize deacon and deaconesses and their roles and responsibilities within the local congregation. Uh, there are many throughout church history who have had both male and female serving in the role of deacons. There are many contemporary churches that have both male and females serving in the role of deacon or deaconess. And so I think we are in good company as we do that. Certainly it's a conversation we can continue to have, but Scripture does support that practice. Again, just as a way of teaching for our congregation, that is part of our constitution and bylaws and something that we have done. So I'm assuming this will spark continued conversation. That is a very good thing. Very happy to have that conversation. Uh, any of the elders and really even among the church members um, to, to be processing through these things. Uh, as I mentioned, this is a timely message because next Sunday, our thought is, our plan is to be voting on this and uh, wanting to make sure that we're being faithful to the word of God. As I close, let me just encourage us, hopefully all, nature of the church, the nature of church offices, the specific role and function of deacons within the church, they are a gift, right? So those of you who have been nominated for deacon, I want to thank you in advance for your service already, right? You're nominated because you're already doing a lot of these things. I believe that it is a step of maturity for our local church to officially recognize what you are doing with the office of deacon or deaconess uh, that we will be voting on next week. But I also want to encourage us all, right, that we should all be known as servants of the church, right? So as, as we are growing into the image and likeness of Christ, Romans 8, 29, being conformed into the image of the Son. We want to follow the example of Christ. Isaiah 53, the suffering servant, right? His teaching in Matthew chapter 20. Uh, if you want to be great, you need to become a servant. Paul's encouragement to us in Philippians chapter 2. Have this mind in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who set aside privileges that he had, and became that of a servant, right, on our behalf. That we would all be encouraged to be servants of the church. May we be a community of believers known for our love for one another 
and known for our service to one another that we would have so many individuals to choose from when we say, who serves the church? We'd say, the, the, the list is so long. Just read the list of members. They are servants of the church. We pray that that would be true of us as we uh, faithfully live out what God has called us to do. And let me close with this. Acts chapter 6. In the midst of persecution, in the midst of attempt at moral corruption from within, in the midst of an attempt to distract the church from doing what the church should really do, the leaders of the church, God continues to have an answer, and he just calls for faithfulness on our behalf. And through that faithfulness, the word of God continues to spread, right? I want us to be a local congregation that focuses, right, majors on the majors, minors on the minors, okay? Role of deacon, that's a big deal. Role of elder, that's a big deal. Nature of the church, that's a big deal. But may we be a congregation who can have conversations, who can all be maturing as saints of God, right? And notice verse 7, as a result of these things, verse 7, Acts chapter 6, the word of God continued to increase, the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. What a blessing, right? We don't determine this growth, right? That's only something God does. But may we be a congregation who is faithful in our understanding of the word of God, faithfully living that out, encouraging one another as we are equipped for the work of the ministry. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you, God, for your word, God. I thank you for the example of Christ being a servant. We thank you, Christ, that it is your church. I thank you that you have taken that upon yourself. It is not us who grow your church. We, we have simply been asked to steward what you have given us. God, may we be faithful to do that. Uh, work through the ministries of Christ's covenant fellowship, God, for your glory. May you be pleased in what we do. May your name be exalted in what we do for your glory and for our good. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.